Every October, we recognize Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Traditionally, this month has been used to fundraise, educate, and raise awareness of breast cancer, which is the second most common cancer diagnosed among women. Besides education and advocacy efforts, this month is a time for community members to come together and remind survivors that they are not alone. In this episode, we're shedding a light on issues surrounding breast cancer awareness and women's health equity. I spoke to former First Lady and breast cancer survivor Carla Markell about her battle with breast cancer and the importance of advocating for yourself in a doctor's office and beyond. I also sat down with Delaware Division of Public Health Clinical Cancer Director Melissa Kuyper and Representative and Melissa Minor Brown for conversations surrounding women's health care equity and the importance of early detection. From the Delaware House Democratic Caucus, this is Whip Count. We'll hear now from Representative Melissa Minor Brown. In addition to her duties as a legislator, she's also a practicing nurse who cares deeply about public health. She joins us now for conversations surrounding breast cancer awareness and health equality. I've been a nurse for well over a decade. I'm a registered nurse. Before then, I was a uh, licensed practical nurse, and I began my healthcare career as a nursing assistant. So I've been to every level. I now have my master's in um, executive leadership, but um, I really love public health, which is why I ended up leaving the hospital because, and, and everyone would say, well, why are you leaving the government? Why are you leaving the VA hospital? And I, ju- I just felt like I needed to be out in the community because community is where my heart is. I know that you're a big community advocate for public health, but you've also been a real advocate for women's health issues. And particularly when it comes to equality, you, your big issue is Black maternal health. So what got you interested in that? Personal experiences and then hearing from other women who have had similar experiences. I remember being a patient and not heard. I remember once I actually went to the emergency room five times and I was dismissed all five times. There was a point where I couldn't even see. I had these massive headaches and a stiff neck and I I couldn't even walk correctly. And I would lose my vision for a few moments at a time. And I remember the doctor saying in the ER, he would say, can you see my fingers? He was doing a visual field test, which I know now that's what that is. I didn't know what it was back then. And I said, no, I can't see your fingers. And he would say, you can't see my fingers, come on. And I really couldn't because I was going blind. My vision would close in like a curtain and then come back. So they sent me home and I ended up right back at the emergency room via ambulance. And they labeled me a drug seeker. They literally called me a drug seeker right in front of me. I had something called pseudotumor cerebri where my cerebral spinal fluid levels were tripled. And that is why I wasn't able to see, why my equilibrium was off. And, you know, just knowing the symptoms and after looking it up, you know, if they had just listened to me and just a few more tests and not um, labeled me walking in the door, we may have been able to catch that sooner. Now, thank God I didn't end up blind or with any long-term vision complications, but so many people do. After that, and then my both of my pregnancies, I had the same issues where I would complain about certain situations and it just wasn't heard. I had a blood pressure of like 210 over, I forget the lower number now, but, and to to the provider, it wasn't, you know? So I, I just, you know, sometimes you get to the point where you're like, you know what, if I can't, you know, I just need to change this. You know, I'm tired of complaining. So that's where I am now. You know, I have to be that advocate for other women. You're going through it. There's other people going through it. That end, I know that recently the CDC released data that Black women die from breast cancer at a higher rate than their white counterparts. And Black women are also more likely to find out they have breast cancer at a later stage than white women. 
you think that those same issues are applying? Do you think that they're not getting the care they need? Absolutely. I mean, we see the, the healthcare disparities. Black women right now, I think it's a it's a 42% higher mortality rate if they have breast cancer. But, you know, we need to, there, there's so many issues involved. Okay, access to healthcare is one, but there are other social determinants that, um, you know, affect why African-Americans and minorities in general are not receiving the care that they need and deserve. There's racism, there's inequities, there's biases, there's aggressions. You know, even um, one of the, the, the big complaints, and I've seen it myself, is the doctor-patient relationship. And just being able to, to establish that trusting relationship from the start, a lot of times that doesn't happen. And if a patient feels dismissed because they're complaining, then that you already know that they're not going to be able to maintain their health the way they could if they had that trusting relationship with their doctor. So many people feel dismissed and they walk away and, and, they're, and they're not able to um, get the, the, the care that they deserve. Do you think that there's anything we can do from a policy level to kind of correct these systemic issues? I think there's a lot we can do from a policy level. Um, I, well, I'll, for this, for one, I think that um, we need to have more culturally competent providers in our state. You know, we don't have enough. And when a doctor understands your journey and they want to listen, then and they're, and they're willing to establish that relationship, you have better outcomes. So we definitely need to somehow incentivize for culturally competent providers. You know, I don't know if that starts at the, the healthcare level, the hospital and um, or organizational level, or if that starts with um, our, our colleges and our states. You know, I think that we need to, hospitals need to really crack down on um, implicit biases that exist within their organizations and let their staff understand that it's, it's unacceptable. You know, when we see the, um, the deaths in, in Black maternal health, let's take the next step and let's look at why this happened and if it could have been preventable. You know, right now we know that 53% of the maternal, black maternal deaths in Delaware were preventable. So, you know, we need to start collecting this data. I think that access to care is a big deal. I think communities need to have community clinics. You know, nobody should have to struggle to get to a doctor's appointment and they shouldn't have to use an emergency room as a primary care. And you talked about kind of your experience of how you went to the hospital and you were denied I'm assuming that you kind of were able to advocate for yourself and eventually that's how you got your care that you need, public life-saving care. Is there anything in the meantime we can do while we're waiting for these changes to take effect or while we're trying to enact change? Can Black women or women of color do anything to advocate for themselves? Yes. Let's talk about breast cancer really quick. I really like to encourage women to get to know themselves and their bodies. I think that's really important. And not just with, health, with breast cancer, that could be with overall health. But, you know, we, we've heard since we were little girls, breast self-exams, you know, that's important. But it's also important to just know what you look like, you know, stand in the mirror and look at your breast, put your arms up, look at what they, and do that often so that you will know when something looks different. The intervention is so important. So you need to tell your doctor immediately. And if your doctor doesn't listen, doesn't take a further step, so it's nothing, and you still feel like there's something wrong, get a second opinion. It's so important that you get a second opinion and, and seek out doctors. Do your research. Look at their reviews. You don't have to settle for just any old doctor. Uh, we're seeing nurse practitioners are on the rise as well. Nurse practitioners were nurses. I may be, I'm not biased. I know that being a nurse, <laughs> I know the care that we offer our patients. When it comes to just overall health care, I think that, I think what's most important is that you never walk away feeling uneasy. Mm -hmm. 
if you if your doctor is not listening to you, get a second opinion, but advocate for yourself while you are there. This is the problem that I'm having, and I need you to do something about it. If you don't get the answers that you need, you keep going. Don't stop, because ultimately we're responsible for our health care, you know, and do your research. Look it up. Ask around, but don't stop. Don't settle. That's so important. I wanted to close out this conversation with a group of people that can't go anywhere they want. They don't have that option, and that is people in correctional facilities. I know that you do a lot of work in those kind of facilities, and you're also on the corrections committee in the House. What can women in correctional facilities do to advocate for their health? So there are so many thoughts that um, prison health care is not adequate, and that's a problem. I'll start there problem because just because you are incarcerated does not mean that you do not deserve adequate health care. And I'm not talking about basic health care. I'm talking about adequate health care. Well, there is a grievance process. I think imprisoned women need to know just because you're behind those bars does not mean you cannot advocate for yourself. If you're complaining about an issue and nobody is hearing you, write letters. If you have family, talk to your family, write those letters, file a grievance, you know, keep going back, fill out those sick calls. On the other end, as the chair of corrections, I am all up in that. <laughs> as the chair of corrections, you know, I take prison health care as a priority. That's a big deal. And I am constantly in contact with Claire DeMattius, the prison commissioner, and doc- Dr. Ollie. She is over the health care delivery in corrections. So we're constantly having conversations. If I receive a letter and, there's, and it's an inmate who's saying that they don't feel like they received the care that they deserve, I'm on the phone. We're looking at their records. You know, and we're looking at where, why they may feel that way and how we can resolve it. I am so happy to be joined now by former First Lady Carla Markell. Carla Markell is a breast cancer survivor herself, and she's going to openly share her battle with breast cancer here with us today. Carla, thank you for being here, and thank you for being so open uh, about this journey of yours. I'm sure that a lot of people can maybe relate to it or at least find some comfort in knowing that they're not alone. Oh, it's, I'm happy to be here and uh, to share my own story with the hope that it will help other people come forward uh, to get the help they need to handle whatever health issues they have. I think transparency is always a good thing. It's not always a comfortable zone for a lot of people, but I find that um, pretty much in any, any walk of life, any situation, if you open up about it, somebody else will connect to it and it will encourage them in some way to get the help they need. Well, thank you again. And for any of us that don't know, could you begin by telling us a little bit about your journey as a survivor of breast cancer, maybe like how you got diagnosed, how you were able to treat it? Sure. So I've actually been diagnosed twice. Um, Luckily for me, both times were stage one early detection. So I highly recommend people get their mammograms regularly. Mine were both caught on routine mammograms, followed up with some ultrasound And then uh, I had a lumpectomy and radiation uh, once on each side. And uh, luckily, as I said, I I caught it early and I feel like um, I'm one of the fortunate ones and it was pretty straightforward treatment. But, um, you know, a lot of my friends haven't had it so easy and every cancer is different. Every response to treatment is different. Uh, It's a really complicated field, but I feel like we've got an excellent cancer care center here in Delaware at Christiana Care, the Helen Graham center was just outstanding. The equipment is state-of-the-art. And and a lot of this is about detection. And if you don't have the right 3D mammography or the right ultrasound, it's very hard to see some of these cancers. So um, I feel lucky that we have uh, a a hospital here 
that has that kind of um, care. And I, I hope that um, you know throughout our state, it can become more and more equalized. It's, it was one of the things I know we were working on with the Delaware Breast, Delaware Breast Cancer Coalition to try to make sure we had uh, availability of um, you know mammography care for people in in more rural parts of our state. So it's you know e equal access is a, is a big challenge. Definitely, I know that you've done a lot of volunteer work in the past. I know you've maybe done some with Delaware Breast Cancer Coalition, and I know a big initiative of yours is kind of lifting people out of poverty and helping those who are less fortunate. I know that they kind of face some barriers to care, and they can have worse outcomes when it comes to breast cancer because they're not having that early detection. Is there any advice you can give them or any tips on how we can get those people the care they need so that they can maybe have better outcomes in the future? Yeah, I think if they can find a phone number, there used to be a van that went around. I'm a little out of touch with some of the things now, you know, based on the fact that we've been out of office now for close to three years or four years, close to four years now, which is, but there was a van that went around from the Delaware Breast Cancer Coalition. I don't know if their funding has remained steady and if it has, you know, that's obviously a, a, a good avenue for some people in the more rural parts of our state. But um, I think to speak to a healthcare professional, to get a name and just ask questions, be your own advocate, be tenacious, don't take no for an answer. It's the same thing with birth control. It's the same thing with uh, any kind of healthcare that you need access to. The, the squeaky wheel gets the oil and be tenacious with that, with that annual checkup. And I don't know what the right path will be, but ask a lot of questions and, and, and just keep pushing until, until you get your answer. Um, it's it's going to be different for everybody. Even even people that have health care insurance, uh, you know, sometimes it takes a long time. So so get your appointments on the calendar before you need to just just to try to stay on top of it. If I make my annual appointment before I leave the office after my last one, I'm more likely to get it. Uh, just keep pushing. So I know that you shared a lot about your journey in life and how your past kind of led you to become the self-empowered woman you are today. And I know that you like to empower other people, empower women. How can they take those lessons of kind of self-empowerment and take that to the doctor's office? How can they take that to their physical health? I know you mentioned a few things earlier, but how can they really make sure they're getting the appropriate care for themselves? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure doctors have a mixed uh, set of blessings when it mm -hmm. comes to uh, their patients being able to do some research on the internet. Mm -hmm. But uh, we, my husband and I always do research on the internet before we go, just so we're equipped with better questions. Mm -hmm. And if somebody doesn't have access to the internet, then I would say go to the library and try to get access there so that you can ask all the questions. Try to realize that your doctors are humans and they're not perfect, but they're also in many cases, wonderful, caring people, not all cases, but in many cases, and they want to give you the best quality care they can. And sometimes you asking questions and, and not being intimidated by, by them just because they're a physician who's had a lot of education is really important. So to go in equipped, take somebody with you who's an advocate, go in with somebody who is, um, you know, in a position where they can write down information, take notes, uh, come up with questions. If you're a little frozen, I, I remember the first time I had it, uh, I was a little frozen. I, I just, I was in shock and there was too much information coming at me at one time. And Jack was just really good at taking, taking notes and asking questions and, you know, being able to sort of refer back to it later uh, at, a, at a future time, because I was a little, in a little bit of a daze about it. And when you hear the words cancer, it is very scary. So, Take somebody with you, uh, have a, even a young person, my 
son came with us um, to an appointment and he was amazing at taking notes and putting down live links to medications they were talking about so we could go back to it later. Sometimes young people, you know, right. have a capacity that we don't necessarily have once you hit a certain age uh, to be able to, you know, process all the information and all the technology that can go with it. So, so I think to, to prepare with, with lots of information, lots of good questions, take somebody with you, somebody who can take notes and somebody who, who's your advocate. So I know you have to say when you go to the doctors, you're getting flooded, I can imagine, with all kinds of information about your physical health or the next steps. But I imagine that getting a cancer diagnosis, that has to take a toll on your emotional well-being, I'm sure. What can women do to take care of themselves emotionally? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's interesting as I look around at all my friends and how they've handled different health issues uh, and, and, and how I think it plays out in the long run. So I was very fortunate to have a couple of people who had been on this path before me who I, who I listened to. And um, I'm lucky that I have that mindset that allows me to be open and listen uh, to what other people suggest or advise. So my, my, my one uh, person in my life said, whatever you do, if somebody offers to help, just say yes. Like it's a, they're ask they're asking if they can help out of genuine love and compassion. And there's really nothing else they can do except bring you a meal or bring you a card with a little goodie, you know, a flower, something, or just a visit. And so I I learned early on to accept help from people, and not always, but but you know, it, it was really nurturing. And it turned out my family really liked it too. Like if they knew my friend was bringing over a salmon dinner with vegetables, they were like, this is great. <laughs> yeah. So say yes and accept the help that people offer. And then, you know, beyond that, I think there's a lot around nutrition and health. And one of the things Jack and I have really tried to study and look at is, you know, the the balance in a diet and how important that really is and avoiding sugars and alcohol and, you know, lots of things that can cause inflammation in your body. There's a lot of research out there that says inflammation contributes to cancer. And, you know, some doctors will say there's a lot of truth in that. And then some will say that we haven't got the research on it, but, you know, sometimes you have to just kind of look at common sense. And if there, if you have a high fat, high sugar diet, that doesn't seem good for your body, you know, it seems like, you know, it can't hurt anyway to try to exactly eat it can't hurt inflammation in your body. You'll feel better anyway. Mm -hmm. um, you'll be more likely to exercise. You'll be more likely to do other behaviors that are healthy for you. Exercise, as long as you don't do it in excess, I think is also an excellent reliever of stress, but also keeps all your you know bodily flowing well and, and your immunity stronger. Exactly. So, um, you know, obviously all the main stuff like avoiding smoking and trying mm -hmm. to, um, you know, trying to live a healthier, healthier lifestyle. Something a few people told me are some of the environmental risks too, like candles burning in the house. I had never heard that, I didn't but know that. you know, a lot of people burn candles all the time and a lot of them have scents they give off. And, um, I don't even know about unscented candles, but that was one of those wake ups too, like air fresheners and room fresheners and some of the environmental factors that I had never thought about as being car possibly carcinogenic. So I think the more you can do to sort of think about your environment, your, your environment, both externally and internally, um, the better. And that probably goes back to your research, right? You're probably seeing a lot of that as you're as you're researching this condition. Yeah, researching and uh, again, differing opinions. You know, some of the more uh, I'll say, you know, homeopathic practitioners mm -hmm. are going to focus on things like that, and you know, some some Western trained physicians who are younger, I find are also very focused on that. And um, you know, I, I think there's a lot more information in medical school now about about the environmental hazards uh, toward health, both, again, how you treat your body, 
with food and nutrition and, and environmental factors, but also the mental side of things and mental health and, you know, how mental health can really take its toll on. I think there's a lot more information today about that than there was 20 years ago. Definitely. And are you still connected with any like survivor groups? I know they say that can be really helpful for people. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I, I mean, I have friends who have, so I guess I have my mm-hmm. own little little circle of people mm-hmm. that I can turn to and friends who come to me when they're going through it. Uh, an so informal I, circle. Yeah, very informal circle. And I just feel so lucky to be blessed with a lot mm-hmm. of caring people in my life. Um, and I, I know it's it's not the case for a lot of people. So I'm very grateful that there are those uh, programs available, Survivor Care Connection and Cancer Care Connection, uh, the Breast Cancer Coalition of Delaware. I mean, Delaware is a very tight-knit community in many ways. And, and um, you know, we used to say it's a state of neighbors. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, that's that's the way it is. I mean, you're usually just one or two degrees away from, you know, somebody who can be there for you. So just, again, be an advocate for yourself. If you're lonely or it's hard or you're alone, you don't feel like you have enough people to turn to, I would 100% just start being, you know, asking questions and who can I turn to and, you know, what, what are my what are answers for me that are possible in our community? Because there will be help out there, but mm-hmm. you have to speak up. You know, you have to be your own advocate. And I just wanted to close with this last question. I know we've talked about you know when you're the one that has a diagnosis and how you can help. But what advice would you give families of people that receive a breast cancer diagnosis or any cancer diagnosis, really? Yeah, that's a really good question. And again, it's very personal. It's very mm-hmm. different for different people. But again, I I tend to go back to transparency. So I, I, I was always a little frustrated when parents or grandparents or friends of mine, parents that, you know, kept things a secret around uh, their health. And, you know, you'd find out oh, my dad has terminal cancer and it's like, really? Like, what, when did this come about? Like, how, right. how come we didn't know this was coming? So it always seemed like a big shock. So I've always gone to the other side, maybe to a fault where I would say <laughs> as well, I'm getting my mammogram today. And they were like, okay, mom, like, you know, they were, they were very sort of nonplussed by that. But then when the day actually happened that I had it, you know, and I would say everything's good, you know, and everything's good. And they, they were always like, okay, good. So this particular day, you know, I'm going for my mammogram. And then I was able to say to them, well, they found a little something. So they want me to have a biopsy. Mm-hmm. So they sit up a little straighter and they go, oh, okay. All right. Well, I hope everything's okay. And then when the biopsy comes back and I say, it turns out I have it, I have a stage one, uh, form of estrogen positive cancer, then they're not blindsided by that. But I'm also able to say to them what the exact treatment protocol is going to be. And they also trust that I am not keeping anything from them. So Mm. in our family, we've always operated that way. And uh, I think it has been helpful with people not panicking, not getting anxiety ridden, not, Mm. you know, worried about whether or not we're keeping things, uh, you know, uh, about our health you know, uh, from them. So I've just always gone that route. And then I have other friends who have kept it a secret from everybody in their family, including their kids. I mean, they've told their husbands, but they haven't told anybody else because they just wanted it to be private. So I don't think that's always worked out well for them. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like they haven't had a community around them to be helpful. And and then you're also robbing your kids of sort of knowing what their genetic, uh, if, if they're, if they're right. biological children, you're sort of robbing them of knowing what their own genetic predispositions are to things. So uh, it, as I said, it's personal, but for me, I've always mm-hmm. operated that way. Hopefully together we've uh, made a difference in somebody's Thank life. You. Now we'll hear from Melissa Kuyper. Melissa Kuyper works for the Delaware Division of Public Health, where she is a director of the Clinical Cancer Center there. Melissa, could you begin by telling us a little bit about your background? I am a nurse by background. I've worked in numerous 
types of nurse positions um, from floor nursing to administrative positions. Um, and now for the Division of Public Health, I work as the Clinical Cancer Director for the Chronic Disease Bureau. So we focus on um, breast, cervical, colorectal, lung, and prostate cancer. So can you tell us a little bit about like what breast cancer is? I know in October we hear about Breast Cancer Awareness Month all the time. Can you just let people know what that even is? I know there's a lot of different types too. Yeah, so there are different types of breast cancer, um, but breast cancer can occur in both men and women. Um, I know sometimes um, breast cancer is felt to be more of a women-only cancer, but it is actually found in both men and women. So just something to be aware of since we are talking about Breast Cancer Awareness Month that it can occur in men as well. Um, but it is it is a cancer that does occur in the breast and it usually begins with a lump, but it doesn't have to. Um, but that's most often how women do find um, the cancer is they find something abnormal with their breast um, and they identify something that's just not quite right with their breast. Um, and they usually have a conversation with their doctor um, and then their doctor tends to order some imaging tests and that's when the cancer is identified. So besides the lumps, are there any other symptoms that men and women should look out for? I know that it's important to do self-screening tools. What is kind of self-screening and what can people be on the lookout for? So self-screening um, is kind of being aware of your breast, um, taking the time we say while you're in the shower, just being familiar with your breasts, getting familiar with them, kind of seeing on a day-to-day -day basis what changes, especially with women um, and during the time of the, their menstruation, there is some differences with your breasts, getting to know that. And if you do notice something different, um, that you do bring that to your, your doctor's attention. Um, if there's any um, lump or if you notice that like the nipple inverts or there's some drainage, those are the types of things that you want to bring to your doctor's attention. But really, anything, any change that you notice that's kind of not normal for yourself, you should really have that looked at by your doctor. And we're talking about screening now. Um, I'm sure you're really sick of hearing about COVID-19 because it's probably been your life for the last eight months. But oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> do you think this pandemic has affected the way that people are getting screened? Do you think that people are putting off treatment or are just kind of afraid to go to the doctors in general? Um, yeah, I, unfortunately, I really do think that, um, you know, even myself included, we're just a little bit more apprehensive about going to the doctor's offices, um, just going out in public period with COVID. So we just have to be mindful um, and us as healthcare providers, but also individuals and consumers of healthcare, uh, we just need to make sure that we are getting screened and we're taking the steps to get screened and you know we're still wearing our masks and and washing our hands and taking those precautions but getting screened is still of utmost importance during this time. And I know that just right now during COVID, a lot of us are having trouble getting to the doctors or getting screened, but there's a particular group of people in low income areas that have trouble getting screened even before COVID. So what would you say to those men and women that are, that are having trouble accessing care? Is there somewhere they can go? Is there a place they could call? Yeah, so um, there is a multitude of places throughout the state that they can go. Each one of our federally qualified health centers 
is available to speak to individuals that need help to get screened for breast cancer or any other type of cancers. Um, we do have patient navigators throughout the state on healthydelaware.org, which is the um, state website. They can request to speak to a patient navigator and we can walk them through that process of assisting them to get screened. We do have some patient navigators that work with the federally qualified health centers that can help them get screened. They can also call 211 and that is something that um, they can help to get screened as well. That's good. I'm glad there's options for them. I actually talked to the former First Lady Carla Markow earlier about her journey with breast cancer. And she mentioned that something that she does to reduce her risk of getting breast cancer again is eating an anti-inflammatory diet and really focusing on her diet and exercise. Besides those two uh, lifestyle changes, is there anything else that people can do to lower their risk of developing breast cancer? Yes. The number one thing is don't smoke or quit smoking if you do smoke and limit your alcohol use. Really, um, if you are obese or, or, or mildly overweight, um, is to reduce your, your weight. And then really, if you do use birth control, just be mindful. But then there are some um, non-modifiable risk factors that you you can't really modify, but knowing what those are. So if you do have dense breasts, mm -hmm. um, know that you have dense breasts. And if you have a um, history of gene defects or mutations, knowing that risk and then talking to your doctor about potentially getting screened early. You talked about the genes. I know now there's a really big emphasis on genetic testing, not just for breast cancer, but for a plethora of health reasons. Mm -hmm. Is that something that's usually covered by insurance? Is that something that you can do here in Delaware? Genetic testing is um, usually covered by insurances. Yes, you can get it done here in Delaware. Usually at every hospital, they do have connections to genetic counseling that is available. So that is something that you would want to talk to your doctor about um, to see if that's something that you would qualify for. The last thing I just wanted to close with was, is there any myths that you're always hearing about breast cancer or cancer or health in general that you want to take the time here to debunk? The one thing that I've, I started out with, which is men don't get breast cancer, which that is a myth. Mm -hmm. um, so I debunked that one already. We're a myth. Wearing a bra can cause breast cancer. There is no evidence that bras cause breast cancer. Wearing deodorant can cause breast cancer. There's no evidence that wearing deodorant causes breast cancer. I know you talked earlier about like hormonal birth control. Is that, is that something that contributes or is that also a myth? I would say talk to your doctor about what type of birth control you're on mm -hmm. um, to find out what that risk is. Do you have any closing thoughts? I would just say, you know, know your risk, get screened. And if you have any questions, please talk to your doctor and please talk to your doctor about getting genetic testing. Whip Count is brought to you by the Delaware House Democratic Caucus. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash dehousedems, on Twitter at dehousedems, and on Instagram at dehousedems. More episodes are coming, so make sure you're subscribed.